Hello and welcome to the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. Take the good with the bad, the rough with the smooth, and to know that better things will come. Today I'm talking to Gary Cookson, who is director at Epic HR Limited, a company which helps people and places to evolve, perform, improve and compete, hence the acronym EPIC. Gary lives in Winsford in Cheshire and has been recognised in HR Magazine's HR Most Influential Movers and Shakers in 2019. Welcome Gary and thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Andrew. Really pleased to be here. Thank you. So tell me, you, you grew up in Cheshire in Winsford and you went to Verdin High School there. What were you like at school? <laughs> um, I'm probably not a person that I would um, recognise now. I think I was quite different at school, both physically, emotionally, and I was very, very quiet, very shy, very introverted was very focused on my studies and excelling academically to the exclusion of almost everything else. I think by the time I finished school, I was really naive. I wasn't, didn't have much common sense. I, I knew a lot about the academic stuff, but I knew very, very little about life. And, and school didn't help me with, with much of that. So did you find yourself spending a lot of time at home studying on your own or were you out with your friends at all? Or was that introverted sort of side of your character really, really strong? And uh, I was very, very introverted. I was big on computer games and so on. And they were, you know, a big part of my life in the mid to late 80s and early 90s. And they tended to dominate what I did. So I would I would sit in my bedroom and I would very rarely go out. And that's probably not unusual now for many kids of that age with playstations and, and things like that but it was probably unusual then to find people doing it because there was no internet there was there was nothing of that sort and i i didn't go out much i didn't play much sport i wasn't an outdoor person in contrast to how i am now and i just spent a lot of time in my room and i would do my homework and as soon as that was done i would get onto my computer and, and play games and I did have friends round and I would go around to their house, but it was all indoor stuff, never went out. I guess at school, you seemed to sort of, you must have had an interest in history and politics because that's what you went to Huddersfield University to read. How did that thought process run in your mind? History was, was always my favourite subject growing up. Yeah, I've always had a real fascination for facts and figures from the past and uh, lots of different things in terms of battles and, and wars and kings and queens and all kinds of things like that. So that's been a real interest of mine you know, from a very, very young age, always been fascinated by what's gone on in the past. And as you, as you develop your, your academic career and you go through GCSEs and then A-levels, you come to appreciate it in a different way. It's, it's more than just that. It teaches you to question things. It teaches you to challenge different perspectives and to to gather different bits of evidence to reach co your own conclusions really and i liked that way of thinking that way of interpreting things so when i was going to university and i was always encouraged if not pushed to go to university from an exceptionally young age by my mum 
I was only ever going to do history. There was never really anything else I thought about doing. The, the politics uh, was, was a bit of an add-on, and that was mostly because that was the way that universities tended to pair some of the subjects. History was very often paired with politics. And there's, there's a logic to it because very often the, the history of our world is dominated by the political sphere and what the leaders of our world were doing at the time. So there was a, there was a logic to pairing the two together and I felt it went well, very well together. Yeah, I, I can imagine. And I guess also within that, you're thinking about people's motivations because characters are involved as well in those sort of big decisions, aren't they? Yeah, they are. So you get to learn about leadership and, and the way different leaders operated and the way they made decisions and the way they influenced people and how they got things done and how they worked. So it gave me an insight into how leadership works, which has been useful in later life. That's, that's sort of the connection I was starting to make in my mind. So how did you find that transition, given you'd been quite introverted at school and then you, you, you end up at Huddersfield University? Um, did you find that an easy transition or was it quite a difficult one for you? It was awful. My first three months from kind of September to December 1993 were, were awful. And how I got through them, I will never, ever know. I, I was regularly in tears. I was regularly clamoring with my parents to let me come home. I, I was really struggling socially and it was an awful time, but I learned so much in that time. And I'm glad I saw it through. Once I got into my second term, I was a lot better, a lot more relaxed, but it was awful. All of a sudden I was with people I'd never met before, expected to live a life and, and without my parents around me who I'd lent on too heavily in those first 18 years. I didn't know how to do my washing. I didn't know how to cook a meal. I didn't even know how to make a cup of coffee. I didn't know how to order a takeaway. I didn't know how to interact with lots of people. I'd, I'd li lived too sheltered a life and that I, I was thrown into the deep end and it was sink or swim. And thankfully I, I swam, but it was a close run thing at times. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, just thinking at the moment, a lot of people starting university in a very sort of different world and it's going to be hard, you know, hard for them. So during your time at Huddersfield, I'm just thinking about how did you change as a person and what did you sort of learn about yourself as a person in terms of your strengths, your weaknesses, perhaps, maybe what gave you energy or what you found difficult? I, d I discovered a wider group of people with different interests and different backgrounds to me, having come from a very small, insular Cheshire town. It was interesting to suddenly be, I mean, I wouldn't class Huddersfield as a metropolitan, but compared to compared to Winsford, where I'm from, it seemed like it. And I was exposed to people from different nationalities, different ethnic backgrounds, different ways of thinking and upbringing. And that was a real education for me in terms of how I need to widen my social sphere and how I need to interact with people differently. I learned about the academic side of things as well. And I was pretty good at doing that. And I knew that already, but it was, I was challenged in a different way to, to put my thoughts down on paper and to debate with people. Those are things that I've used in, in, in later careers as well. And that was helpful. I could operate at a higher level and realize I could make something of myself with those types of skills. So I learned those types of things. I also learned about being physically healthy. I'd gone through 18 years of 
having all my meals cooked for me and not really questioning what I was eating and not really needed to think about it and not needing or not being encouraged to do any physical exercise and not realizing the, the well-being benefits that come from that. And all of a sudden I, I needed to, to change all of that. And I learned about all those things while I was at university. Right, right. So it, it almost sounds like um, you, you got a far greater sort of balance if you're in your life, if I can call it that, between all the different aspects of what makes you, you, you know, the physical, the thought, the interactions with other people and all of those. So you became probably a more rounded person. After university, you, you wanted to, or, or in your mind was to go and do a PGCE, which you did. So presumably you were thinking about secondary education and becoming a teacher. Was that right? I really struggled growing up knowing what I wanted to be when I grow up. And, and even now I'm 45 and I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And teaching had always come round in conversations with, with teachers and, and careers advisors and parents as something that people thought I might like. And I didn't have a strong view either way. And equally, I didn't have any strong views about what else it might be. So at the end of my my degree course lots of people were going on and doing pgces or, or similar things to prepare them for teaching whether that be very young children or secondary school or, or in academia and i just kind of followed the crowd without really thinking about whether it was for me or not i didn't have any alternative so it was easy just to say yeah okay i'll do a pgce and it kept me from the, the decisions about what are you going to do with the rest of your life for another 12 or 18 months. It was a way of buying myself a little bit of time. And my, my two big careers that I've always wanted to do, one was to play football for Man United and the other was to be a professional wrestler. And neither of those seemed close at that time and, and still don't. I've not given up hope, but they still don't seem close. And teaching was just a way of biding my time, something that I thought I'd be relatively good at. It gives me additional skills, additional qualifications. Let's see how it goes and then let's review after a year or so. So that was why I did it. Right, right. And I guess during that year, you perhaps learned that probably that wasn't going to be the career for you. Was, was that an obvious sort of thing that came early? Or? It, it was, yeah. I, I, I enjoyed the academic side of things and, and I was good at doing the academic side of things. I was good at learning and I found I was good at teaching as well. I found that I, could, I understood how other people learnt and I could construct ways to help them do that. And I was pretty good at standing up and helping people to teach and presenting information, things like that. What I realised very quickly that I didn't like was teenagers. Right. That doesn't help in secondary education very much. It's a, it's a bit of a barrier. And I've got teenage children of my own now, and it's, it's a different thing. But when, when you are only just out of your teens yourself, I think I was 21, 22, and you teach in a class full of 30 or so teenagers who don't want to be there, who despise you before you've even opened your mouth, who don't like the subject that you teach in, it wasn't an easy thing to, to do. No, I can, I can imagine. So at the end of that, then, you, you went to work at, at ICI at Runcorn in process improvement management uh, for a couple of years before sort of changing tack and moving into training and development. So tell us a little bit about that and how that journey unfolded for you at the time. 
Well, there was an element of desperation to it. I needed something to pay the bills because I'd moved back from Lancaster where I'd done my PGCE and I moved back in with my parents and there was immediate pressure from them to, why don't you get a job? When are you going to get a job? And I was still looking at teaching jobs at that point, but they were, they weren't easy to come by. And I wasn't really convinced that I really wanted one anyway, but I was looking for teaching jobs and I just did some temporary agency work while I was waiting for the, the perfect teaching job to come along. And that was at ICI in Runcorn in their financial services section. And they were going through a, a bit of a change. And, and you, Andrew, will know who ICI was as a business, but the, the younger readers and listeners to this will not have a clue who ICI is. But in the 1990s, they were probably one of the top 10 companies in the UK. And based where, where you are in kind of Runcorn, Warrington area, they were probably the major employer in the region. And lots of people I knew worked at ICI, I had friends and family there, and I got in through that route. But they were, they were shrinking fast, ICI. They were divesting businesses. They were demerging. So that was when AstraZeneca was created. They were going through a huge contraction. And I was part of that. Because they were selling businesses, they were spinning things off, they were making lots of people redundant. The way they operated their financial services, shared service center, which was in Runcorn, needed to change. They were going from supporting businesses dispersed globally of hundreds of thousands of people to businesses just based in the northwest of the UK with only a couple of hundred. And the kinds of processes you need to operate for, you know, businesses of that size are different so they had to do some business process re-engineering and I knew next to nothing about it but I was willing to learn it and my role was to help the people in this project to shrink the business processes so that they were able to work with an organization of hundreds as opposed to an organization of hundreds of thousands so there was systems changes, there was process changes. And my role was to do the training element of that. And they brought me in because I had the teaching skills. And they said, you're good at planning lessons. You're good at delivering lessons. If we give you the content, can you plan and deliver some training sessions to our workforce? And I said, yeah. So I started doing that. And I did that for two years. Right, right. And, and had, for two years. And how, how did you feel sort of standing up in front of people older than, than yourself and, and delivering that teaching material? And presumably you were sort of empowering them to, um, to address the processes themselves. Yes, I was. I, I felt a lot more comfortable than, than I had done with teenagers. There was, there was no immediate threat of violence for a start, which was, which was a big help to me and helped me to relax quite a lot. And I realized I was quite good at doing that kind of stuff, but it ended up being less teaching and more facilitation. As you rightly say, I was helping them to think through problems and solve problems. So there was a lot of what, what I now recognize as facilitation and organizational development work Back then, I just thought I was helping people. And I realized I was good at it. I was good at framing questions, at uh, getting people to look at things from different perspectives. I was good at helping people to think of organizations as a system and think of the different parts of it. 
and and in facilitating people through to problem solving and it was a lot of that type of stuff as opposed to teaching and it evolved over that two-year period and I, and I imagine it must have been very rewarding because you must have seen some impact from your teaching in in what the people that you know you've been engaging with were then able to do did are there any examples it, well it was a bittersweet reward really because one of the rewards was was that the people themselves were no longer needed and they could be made redundant some people were quite happy with that because they knew it was coming and they were heading towards the door with a smile on the face other people less so. So I got to experience redundancies for the first time and major organizational change. But it was good because I could see the efficiencies that were being created. I could see the return on investment from the things I was doing. I could clearly link what I was doing to changes within the business. And that taught me an awful lot. But at the same time, I knew that it had to come to an end because once we'd done it, we'd done it. And I knew my role wouldn't be needed at the end of that. I knew that I was going to be the last one out of the door, if that's a phrase you can use. So is that then really why you then moved to Golden Gate Housing Trust as the, the head of HR? Well, eventually, there were a couple of stops on the way before I got there. Yeah, I went and worked. Well, when, once my, my project came to an end, I'd started doing my CIPD qualifications by that point because the the people who I'd been working with, they saw the kinds of training facilitation work I was doing. They said, well, actually, you might be pretty good at doing this for a living professionally. Why don't you think about doing CIPD qualification? So I, I started that. That got me then my, my first proper what I'd call HR job. And it was a, a call center in Manchester. And I was the, the training development officer there for about a year. What we did was... If you ever watch things like EastEnders and Coronation Street, and it's a particularly hard-hitting storyline, at the end of it, it says, if you've been affected by this program, please call this number. That, that was us. That was who we were. And we'd provide that service to, to the BBC and ITV. It was a very fast-moving environment because the soap and the soaps and the storylines, they would only give you about four weeks advance notice of their storylines because that was when they were filming it. And so we'd get a call from the BBC and they'd say, right, in a month's time, we're going to have a storyline about child abuse or drug addiction or whatever it might be. Can you get a call centre ready to cope with the spike of calls that's going to be for about a week around about this storyline? And so we'd then have to think, right, OK, yes. How are we going to staff that call centre? Where's it going to be? how are we going to get the, the telephony and the kit in place and how are we going to train up these people so that they can take these calls? And that could be anywhere in the country. So I would get a, a call from, from my manager who says, right, next week you're going to be based in Leicester for a month or next week you go into Belfast for a few weeks and that's where the call centre is going to be. And you've got to recruit people, you've got to train people you've got to get them ready to do their jobs and their jobs are going to be for about a fortnight and then off they go and you can move somewhere else. It was very fast moving, very fast paced. And I learned a lot about recruitment. I learned a lot about training. I learned a lot about managing performance of people. And I did that for a year before I realized I couldn't cope with that fast pace anymore. I, I was start, I was expecting my first child at that point and having that kind of, um, go to Leicester for a month 
was not going to be workable with a with a baby and i realized i had to change so i moved to a job very close to home it was at college further education college and i was training development manager there for about three years that was absolutely fine and then i went to golden gates housing as well not head of hr initially that came about a year later i was training development manager first and the the change between the training development role and, and head of HR happened by accident. What the, what the housing association had done in my first year there, they bought in HR services from the local authority, which was Warrington Borough Council. They bought it in, but they weren't happy with how it was going. And I was employed by Golden Gates and I'd already done my CIPD qualification at that point. I'd just finished it. So I was fully HR qualified and I was on site. And what tended to happen was all the managers would come to me with their queries instead of going to the, the outsourced bought in HR service because I was there and I knew the business better. And after about a year, the chief exec said to me, we're, we're going to stop using this outsourced service. Uh, and I said, yeah, I can see why it makes a lot of sense. He said, how do you fancy being our head of HR? And I went, oh, all right then. And that was it. There was no interview. There was no process I went through. That, that was it. I became head of HR just by, just by being in the right place at the right time. And I don't think I was ready for that role. Saying this to an ex-colleague yesterday when I caught up with him, I don't think I was anywhere near ready for that role when it landed in my lap if there'd been an interview process i wouldn't have got the job over more qualified and more experienced people who were very very lucky but i took that ball and ran with it for 12 years it's it's a really interesting point you make there because we were talking earlier uh, in the series to somebody called deb hill who works at, at nnl and she had a mentor and the mentor was trying to encourage her to apply for jobs and she would feel that it just wasn't her, she wasn't ready. But what she learnt was that sometimes other people see something in you that you don't see in yourself. And I just wonder whether that might have been the case for you, that you didn't feel ready, but they'd seen something in you that was worth investing in. I, th I think it was, and I think it was the chief executive himself who, who saw that. And you know, he's, he's long since retired and... I've not seen him now for maybe a year or so, but every time I, I catch up with him, we, we go back to those, those conversations from say 2005 or so. And I, we, I, I, I talk to him and I say, well, what, why did you do that? What? And he, he does say things like, I saw the potential in you. I saw that you could grow along with the organization and take us to places. And you understood the organization, you fitted in. And I could say that if I gave you enough room, enough scope, you could do great things. And, and, and that proved to be the case. And it's, it, is like, it was like a mentoring relationship, but he was also my, my manager. But I, I would run through brick walls for that man, even now. And we had such a strong relationship, yeah. Oh, that's really encouraging, though, isn't it? And for people listening, you know, I remember somebody telling me, if you feel you can do, I don't know, 10 or 20% of a job, you should apply. Because, because other people will assess whether you're up to it or not and the investment they might need to put in you to, um, to develop you. Yeah, the, the way we used to do it at GGHT was often what you might call a values-based recruitment process. And I put this in place. 
And, and the chief exec encouraged me to do it because that's how he brought me in. He said, it's not so much about the skills. It's not so much about the knowledge. We, we can find ways of giving you those things. It's about the values that you have and the behaviors and, and the sense of ethics and morals. If they fit, if they align with the organization, everything else can come afterwards. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because this Becoming Me course I mentioned that we're doing with young professionals, it tries to look at the person in in those sorts of terms, sort of about who you are as a person and then your skills and your proficiency uh, and then the journey, you know, to discover discover both along that line. And, and I was just chatting to a student last week, actually, and, and she was saying, there are so many people who are more qualified than me and have got more experience than me. And we were having the conversation that it's actually about you as a person, as well as your skills and experience. And actually, you are unique and there are things you can say about yourself. Yeah, it's, it's a hard thing to, to actually put into practice. So that because the imposter syndrome is a real thing and, and it's driven by comparisons, unfair ones that you that one makes with other people. But you shouldn't really do it. But it is a it's an easy trap to fall into, and I do myself from time to time. You spent your your sort of twelve years or so developing uh, in that role, and then I want to sort of fast forward to this light bulb moment um, when I was reading in in HR magazine about uh, you as a mover and shaker in twenty seventeen. Tell me about twenty seventeen. Okay, I should probably tell you the lead up to it to help help illustrate the story i'd left golden gates housing trust because the organization was merging with another one and and we were the junior partner in the merger and lots of the the things that i held dear were disappearing lots of the people who i'd worked with for 12 years were disappearing and and i i hung around for a year post-merger but my heart wasn't in it and i realized i needed to move on and and the organization had changed around me and that sense of values that i I've explained simply wasn't there anymore. I didn't recognize the organization anymore. So I moved on and I moved on for about 18 months. I was HR director at another further education college. And that was like going backwards in time, 15 years. And it was a really strange, surreal experience. I didn't fit with the organization very, very well. And, and they would say that just as much as I am. We, we just didn't mesh together. I was finding myself having to operate at a much slower pace than I was used to, having to go through things that I'd gone through 15 years earlier in other organizations. It was such a step backwards for me that it was hard for me and hard for them. So I moved on again after 18 months and I moved to uh, the Disclosure and Barring Service in, in Liverpool. And that was in the middle of 2017 and I was associate HR director there. And that was the worst mistake I've ever made in my whole career. Real big mistake on, on lots of levels. And we could fill the whole podcast talking about why that was a mistake. And I lasted about five, six months in that organization before I had what you've referred to as my light bulb moment. I was suffering because I didn't like the job and I didn't like the organization and we didn't fit together. I was suffering on a number of levels. I was getting really stressed with things and there was kind of mental health issues starting to present themselves and also physical health issues. Weight was dropping off me at an alarming rate. There was also a lot of things going on with my family around that time. So for example, uh, my, uh, my wife 
got pregnant with what is now our fourth child around that time. And her pregnancies always go the same way. The first three or four months are really tricky for her. She gets quite ill. After that, she's fine. But the first four months, she needs a lot of support. She would struggle to do things like cook a family meal because the smell would, would make her sick. She would struggle to do things like school runs for the other children because she was too sick. So she needed me to be able to do more of those things, which is fine, happy to do that. But that means my working pattern needed to at least temporarily adjust to make me do those things. And on, on top of that, my mum was diagnosed with ovarian cancer at the same time. And two years later, she, she died from ovarian cancer, but we didn't know that at the time, but she was quite ill and she couldn't do school run she couldn't do some of the childcare that we were relying on her to do so it was really down to me to do all these things and i was having a very difficult time of things at work and i was in liverpool and the journey from winsford to liverpool is not as easy as i thought it might have been there is a direct train line but then what i hadn't factored into my my thinking was that the office itself was a good 25 minute walk from lime street station in all weathers carrying some heavy bags so what i thought was a nice easy 35 minute train journey became more like an hour and a half when you factor in the walk either side of of the train and the, and the commute to the train station and i was getting to work angry i was getting to work angry because i'd had to leave the house before anybody else was awake and i knew that i wasn't going to be around to support my wife and see my children and by the time I got back my wife had had a horrible time of things and my kids had had their tea and I'd missed out on that and I was angry at work on top of that I needed to work away at least once or twice a week we had offices in Darlington in London and I was expected to be in those offices over and overnight stays and things and it was just impossible impossible and I asked for some support from from my manager at the time and I was told words to the effect of grow a pair you're a man you're a senior manager comes with the territory you shouldn't be moaning about these things and i was also told by my manager that you know she had her own problems and she had a mother with cancer as well and she just got on with life and why couldn't i and i i didn't really like that and i was speaking at the cipd conference in november 2017 and my my talk was on flexible working, which is a subject very dear to my heart and something I talk about quite a lot and have done since too. And work-life balance and the importance of getting it right and how HR professionals should lead the way. And I listened to myself talk and I thought, you're preaching here to HR professionals about what they should do and you're not doing those things yourself. And I went back in the following day and I... I resigned. It was a difficult conversation, but the net result was, was I resigned, took a leap into the unknown and, and thought, I can't do this anymore. I need to have more control over when and where I work, the type of work I do and who I work with. I need to be able to get my perfect day as often as I can and do the support that I need to my family because they come first and then work would, would naturally come second. So I needed to realign and that was my light, light bulb moment. That was really encouraging, actually. So thanks so much for sharing it. So how's things been over the last three years with, with your, your business? 
because that's another new development and hopefully the balance has been better and good for you i think if you take the three years as a whole yes it's been better but i think it would be hard to say it's been perfect there's been lots of mistakes made along the way an awful lot of mistakes and i'm okay with that because i think if you view work-life balance as a, a kind of a beta product it's constantly being refined constant iterations of you know, let's make it better. Let's tweak this. Let's change that. And that's how I think you should approach things like work-life balance and flexible working and remote working in organizations. It's never the finished product. You don't get to a point where you get your work-life balance badge. That never happens. But I'm closer to it than I was. And I help other people with these types of problems, whether it's through coaching or facilitation. I've got more control though now, and that's the big thing. I have a lot more control. I am the one dictating how my day goes and fitting things in. And I do make mistakes, but they're my mistakes. They're not things forced on me by other people. So I can own those mistakes and I can think, you know, I'm going to change that and, and so on. So for example, during lockdown, it's not been easy. I've made loads of mistakes during lockdown as lots of people I'm sure have as well. But I know about those and they were my fault and I can change that as opposed to not being able to influence those things, I can. Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. You can make your own decisions. Um, great. Well, look, thank you so much for that. Um, I want to take you back. And I, I was thinking the best point in, in the story that, you know, your journey that you've shared where you could give yourself some advice. And I'm wondering whether it's those first three months at university, which was so difficult for you. Um, and whether you could look back on 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 yourself at that point and think what what could what would i've liked to have whispered in my ear that i know now that i didn't know then what would it be i think that's one of the the junctures where i could give myself some advice there are several others as well and i think any time i've been going through a difficult period and that was certainly one and and the advice is is i think one that my my mum shared with me at the time and though I don't like to recognize it I am quite like my mum I think and she told me to keep going she told me to take the good with the bad the rough with the smooth and to know that better things will come and that proved true and another thing that she used to say to me is it's just a phase bad times they're just a phase they they end and that's true. And that's something I remind myself of whenever I'm going through bad periods, whether it's a, a bad period in my marriage or a bad period with my children or a bad period in my career. It's just a phase. It will end. There are different things around the corner. You can control many of those things. So that's what I would be reinforcing to my younger self. And I don't think it's something that I wouldn't have heard by that point. But I think I'd be able to say, it's true, I lived through it. What your mum is telling you, what you know inside yourself, it's actually true, and here's the proof. Fantastic. That, that Again, that's very encouraging for people listening as well, so thank, thanks so much for that. And thank you for your time uh, this morning, Gary. It's been great to chat, and uh, a lovely story, and it's not over yet, you've got a long way to go, and uh, we look forward to following you on LinkedIn and all sorts of things like that. So thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, 
To help others enjoy it too, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate and review. Thank you.